Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. This is Neil Livingston. Glad to be on the show today. And we are thrilled that you're tuned back in for our second interview in two weeks with Dr. Hugh Ross. Last week, we talked with Dr. Ross about the passing of Stephen Hawking. You can go to godsolutionshow.com, and under the past shows, you'll be able to hear that interview. It was a great interview. While you're there, check out our many other past shows and interviews that we have uh, posted there. Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Ross about his most recent update, his fourth edition of The Creator and the Cosmos. There is a small element of the Christian apologetics movement that disagrees with a minor issue that Dr. Ross holds pretty firmly. And that group is pretty vociferous in their attacks against Dr. Ross. I just want to nip that in the bud right now and ask you to respect this man of God and hear what he has to say. Dr. Ross is a committed apologist, evangelist, scientist, and pastor. He shares eloquently the evidence in science for our faith, and he shares quite convincingly how the biblical data are not at odds with the scientific data. He is a man that I know personally loves the Lord very much, and I am always amazed by his genuine heart for God. Whenever we interview Dr. Ross, and I've interviewed him numerous times over the years, he's always been quick to begin our interviews in prayer. He refers to Scripture probably more than any apologist I've ever interviewed. His apologetical approach is always evangelistic, and you see it in his books, you see it in his interviews, you see it all the time. So as we Talk with Dr. Ross today. If you are one of the very few that has a problem with him, I just want to ask you to go back to the core thing that God asks of you, that you would love your brother as yourself. Whatever your perspective on some of these issues, I think you're going to get a lot out of what Dr. Ross has to say today. He's going to do an eloquent job dealing with some incredibly important topics, talking about the wealth of evidence for our faith that has accumulated over the last 25 years and many other topics. It's going to be an incredible show. Welcome back to The God Solution, Dr. Hugh Ross. Well, thank you for having me back. They came to my house about a year ago, and uh, I didn't realize it, but he's gone to my library, and he found five, five of your books sitting there. <laughs> you and So he goes, well, you, you must like Hugh a lot. And I go, well, you know, he's uh, given me a lot of tools to work with. And uh, I just wanted to share a couple things. Uh, last summer, I was up in Glacier National Park, and I'm going to the Sun Highway, walking up through Logan Pass. And we're, we're walking behind a bunch of people, and grandfather talking to his 12 or 13-year-old daughter, and he's telling her that all the answers to how the mountains got here are found in Genesis 1. Yeah, I looked at the granddaughter and said, he's absolutely right. And that was pretty cool. And then two days later, we're in the Tetons in uh, Wyoming, and we're sitting down to eat dinner, and there's four ladies next to us, and they're talking about the probability of the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
you know, and one of them was kind of disagreeing with them. So I looked at her and I said, well, what's, what has the higher probability, you know, of Jesus being able to be raised from the dead or man being spontaneously generated? I appreciate the re- relationship between science and religion that uh, reasons to believe is connected. It's given me a lot of assurance in my faith to be able to share. Anyway, in the latest book, I guess, uh, he has, uh, if, you had to, if, you, if you had to sum up the heart of the book in one or two sentences, what would you say? Well, it's the fourth edition of The Creator and the Cosmos. The first edition came out in uh, 25 years ago. Uh, but this edition is the most extensive revision, 80 new pages of content. And uh, I think what's exciting is each new edition shows how much more evidence we have for the Creator God of the Bible. It demonstrates the principle you see written several times in Psalms and Proverbs and uh, in Job, that the more we learn about nature, the more evidence we uncover for the supernatural handiwork of the creator God of the Bible. And yeah, I'm excited about this fourth edition because the amount of new evidence we have is dramatically greater than what I was able to write in the previous three editions. And uh, I think that's going to encourage people to say, hey, the more we learn, the stronger becomes the evidence for the Christian faith and from a scientific perspective. So, Dr. Ross, what motivated you to update the Creator and the Cosmos? Obviously, you kind of touched on that, but what were some of the driving factors in this fourth edition? Well, I've been meaning to update it for some time. I was just too busy writing other books to do that, but I'm kind of glad I waited because the last two years have seen some really breakthrough discoveries. So I was just encouraged to be able to put all that new material in the book. I mean, the fact that uh, we now know that the universe has a flat geometry, and that has tremendous implications uh, for sustaining the biblically predicted Big Bang creation model. Uh, We actually have measurements uh, that tell us about uh, the inflationary episode that took place a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the cosmic creation event. We got polarization measurements that actually allow us to directly witness the state of the universe as far back as 100 billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the cosmic creation event. That's how close we can get to directly witnessing God bringing the universe into existence. And then the fact that the speculations that uh, atheist physicists have been making about the quantum gravity era, the era that's, quote, beyond possible measurements. A breakthrough happened a little more than a year ago where astronomers said there's actually a tool by which we can penetrate the state of the universe when quantum mechanics was as strong or stronger as a dynamic force on the universe as gravity was and basically showed uh, that quantum space-time fluctuations in the quantum gravity era Hey, when I call it an era, we're talking about the first 10 to the minus 43 seconds after the cosmic creation event. But basically, these astronomers pointed out, if you've got large quantum space-time fluctuations, we'll be able to see those fluctuations because they'll actually blur the images of distant quasars and blazars. And as we look at those quasars and blazars, their images are not blurred telling us that those fluctuations are small enough that there's no possible escape from the theological implications 
of the space-time theorems. So where people like Sean Carroll came up with a quantum eternity theorem, that theorem speculated very large quantum space-time fluctuations. We now have measurements to show that those fluctuations indeed uh, are not large enough to escape the beginning of the universe or a causal agent beyond space and time that creates the universe. So it's an exciting time to be doing the work that you're doing. Very exciting, and I think what most lay people are going to enjoy is just how much stronger the fine-tuning design evidence is than it was, say, a decade ago. You talked about it a little bit, but how has scientific evidence, kind of big picture overall, how has that increased over the last 25 years since the first edition of The Creator and the Cosmos was written? Well, I think what's especially new is we now have the telescope power to examine in detail what the universe was like when it was less than half of its present age. You know, in the third edition, that was kind of a, a murky area. We just did that, the telescope power, to see what was going on with any great precision. We do now. And what we see uh, in that early era of the universe is overwhelming evidence that, indeed, we're looking not only at a God beyond space and time, but a God who's personal and caring with respect to the human species. And what's most exciting for me of all is to discover that additional fine-tuning evidence shows that not only did God design the universe so we could have a planet in which we human beings could enjoy life, he designed it in such a way that billions of us could hear the redemptive message and receive that redemptive message and enter into an eternal loving relationship with our Creator. It's not only designed for our existence, it's designed for our personal redemption. Could you share another uh, specific new finding that you include in the update? And how does it uh, confirm the existence of a creator? Well, there's been a lot of debate about what do stars look like uh, throughout the history of the universe. And again, we lack the telescope power to answer that question uh, a decade ago. Uh, but we now can see in detail how stars change over the history of the universe and how those changes are in perfect accord with the biblically predicted uh, Big Bang creation model. And what I show in the book is that, you know, data that we had with the third edition, we now have error bars that are much, much smaller, meaning we've got far greater confidence that indeed this is exactly the characteristics of the universe and this is exactly how the universe developed throughout its history and also basically shows that you can't have the origin of life any earlier in the history of the universe but we see what happened here on planet Earth. In other words, Earth is the first place to have life. If God created life elsewhere, this is the first place he did it because the physics of the universe simply wouldn't allow it to happen any earlier. And also the recognition that you can't have human beings on a planet unless the origin of life happens as early as the physics would allow. And in addition, makes the point that we human beings show up at the end of the history of life in the universe. As the universe continues uh, to uh, age, it's going to reach a point uh, where life will no longer be possible. I mean, for example, just look at the physics of the sun. 
the sun is getting progressively brighter and brighter, it will not be too long before it will be impossible to have any life here on planet Earth. But that's actually a blessing. By God creating us human beings at the very end of the line of possibility means we get blessed with the maximum biodeposits. And it's because of life being here for 3 point billion years before God created us, we have all the coal, oil, natural gas, concrete, concentrated metal ores that make possible our civilization, that make possible billions of us human beings living here at one time with the technology uh, to understand and receive the gospel message of salvation. That's great news. <laughs> the good news is great news. And it's great news that so many billions of people in our day and age can hear it. And I just want to pause here for all of you that are apologists out there. The point of apologetics is evangelism. There's a world that needs our Savior, and we should be taking all this information and putting it in evangelistic packages to share with people because people do need the good news. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. Today we're interviewing Dr. Hugh Ross about the fourth edition of his book, The Creator and the Cosmos. Dr. Ross, I want to ask you about two famous arguments for God's existence, the cosmological and the design arguments. But first about the cosmological argument. I believe that the scientific evidence for a beginning of the universe is stronger today than it's ever been. So how do you think that helps the cosmological argument? A lot of Christians today uh, use the cosmological argument, uh, but don't recognize that it needs to be buttressed by the space-time theorists. Uh, because, you know, a lot of atheists will say, well, I'm not, I don't believe all the premises in the cosmological argument. But the value of the uh, space-time theorems, it establishes uh, that time is not infinite. Time is finite. Time has a beginning. And that alone is sufficient to establish there must be an agent that has the power to create time and to create space and matter and energy. So, yeah, when you combine the cosmological argument with the space-time theorems, and as I also tell believers, there's more than one space-time theorem. And what's interesting, over the past 30 years, the space-time theorems have become more and more compelling uh, than over the space of time. So I also use that as a piece of evidence. Notice that the more we learn about theoretical physics, the stronger and more compelling become the space-time theorems. So the latest theorem, I write about this in the Crater and the Cosmos, the latest space-time theorem basically closes all the loopholes that atheists appeal to to get around the need uh, for a beginning and a beginner. Uh, you know, there, as Alexander Lincoln said, cosmologists today must face up uh, to the implication that indeed there is a beginning. There is no escape. They have to face the fact that there's this beginning to the universe and all that philosophic, all that that, that philosophically implies. So it is safe to say that the science is confirming more and more the validity of a cosmological argument. But I think it's also doing the same, and I know you agree with this, and you've written about it extensively, including in your newest edition of The Creator and the Cosmos. I think it does a lot to buttress the design argument. Am I right? 
Yes, that's probably one of the bigger contributions of the creator in the cosmos is seeing how much stronger the design argument is. And what I noticed in the previous editions of the creator in the cosmos, my peers would concede that, yeah, the universe is designed to make possible our life, but they wouldn't address our galaxy or a cluster of galaxies or a planetary system. And, you know, what's new in the fourth edition of the creator in the cosmos, no matter what size scale we observe at, we see overwhelming evidence for supernatural, superintelligent design. So, for example, uh, just the third edition, we were just barely discovering planets outside of our solar system. Today, the list stands at over 3,700 discovered planets. And when they were first discovering those planets, they were predicting that the new planets we would discover would be just like the solar system planets. Well, here we are 20 years later, and what we discover is none of them are like the solar system planets. And this new research has shown us that literally all eight of the planets in our solar system plays a critical role in making possible advanced life pos uh, possible here on planet Earth. So when our family celebrates Thanksgiving, we not only thank God for the turkey, we thank God for Neptune, we thank God for <laughs> Venus, uh, for Mercury, uh, Uranus. Every single planet in our solar system makes it possible for us to enjoy Thanksgiving dinner. None of them are wasted. In fact, that's something I'm bringing out in the new edition. Every component of the universe, uh, every event in the history of the universe, plays some role in making possible the redemption of billions of human beings. Nothing is wasted. And where do you see the scientific research heading now uh, over the next 25 years? And do you have any specific predictions? Well, what's going to be happening in the near future, the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be launched, they're now saying sometime next year, and uh, already are being constructed what they call extremely large telescopes. These are optical telescopes uh, with mirrors more than 100 feet in diameter. And it's these super telescopes that are going to enable us, for example, to be able to image the very first stars that formed in the history of the universe. You know, that's been one of the quests of my fellow astronomers, is to be able to find these first-born stars. And it's going to tell us a lot more about the universe. And we're going to be able to see those first-born stars uh, fairly soon, thanks to these uh, super telescopes that are coming online. The other thing I think we're going to be able to do is be able to determine not only is there a cosmic inflation event, but exactly what kind of cosmic inflation event. And I'm predicting that's going to reveal a whole lot more design in the universe for the benefit of human beings than we have uh, right now. So, yeah, as an astronomer, I can't wait for these new discoveries that will soon be available to us. I think you've said something to the effect that there are now very few scientists in the cosmological fields that are unwilling to allow for the possibility of a creator. You've talked about Lawrence Krauss and his admission of the possibility of deism, others like him. How do you think modern scientific discoveries are affecting the cosmological consensus among scientists as far as the possibility of a creator? Well, I remember as a teenager there was a lot of debate going on. Does the universe really have a beginning? 
maybe the Big Bang model isn't right. Maybe there's a steady state model uh, or an oscillating universe model. And, uh, you know, what happened in the decades since then is the evidence has ruled out the steady state, ruled out the oscillating universe model, the hesitating universe model. All the evidence is now sustaining the Big Bang creation model. And I love to point out to my peers that uh, the first book to speak about Big Bang cosmology was the Bible. In fact, for thousands of years, the Bible stood alone as the only book of history, philosophy, or science uh, that said that the universe is traceable back to a space-time beginning, that said that it continuously expands from that space-time beginning under laws of physics that don't change, where one of those laws is a pervasive law of decay. Those are the four fundamental characteristics of the Big Bang creation model. And because of those characteristics, we know the universe must be getting colder and colder as it gets older and older. And one of the things I put in the new edition of the Crater and the Cosmos are the latest measurements that astronomers have made of the past temperature of the universe. Those measurements are in perfect accord with what the Bible would imply of those four fundamental statements. So the fact that uh, you can actually numerically put the Bible's claims about the universe to the test, I think, gives us new evidence that indeed the Bible is the inspired, inspired, authoritative, inerrant word of God. And incidentally, it's not just my hindsight. Jewish theologians that lived centuries ago drew the same conclusions from their reading of the Old Testament. What do you consider the toughest naturalistic objection to cosmological design, and how do you respond? Well, what I've noticed, and I mentioned this in the new edition of Crater and the Cosmos, uh, the strategy has been to look at the anthropic principle, which was brought out a good four decades ago, basically saying we look at the universe, it has all the hallmarks of being personally designed for the benefit of human beings. What has happened in the intervening decades is that it's evolved to what I would call the prebiotic principle, where they simply look at how the universe has been designed to make possible the existence of the prebiotic molecules that are critical for the origin of life, and which is why I put in the book, here's the design to make prebiotic chemistry necessary. Here's the design that's needed just to have bacteria. And here's a design that's needed as bacteria that, that stick around for more than a billion years and compare that with a design you need for plants, what you need for animals, and finally what you need for human beings. And basically show as you go from the design uh, for what's necessary for prebiotic molecules all the way up to the design that you have for human beings, each step towards humanity, the fine-tuning evidence goes up exponentially. So the universe shouts that has been designed to make possible the existence of bacteria, but it screams orders of magnitude louder that has been designed to make possible the existence of human beings. And the greatest noise is to make possible the existence of billions of human beings that can be redeemed from their sin and evil by the Creator and ushered into a realm where evil and suffering will never exist again. Uh, and I'd like to point that out uh, to my unbelieving peers is saying, look, we're not just seeing design to make possible existence. We're seeing design. The universe has been designed to be a tool in God's hand 
to eliminate evil and suffering once and for all. That's significant because the only positive argument atheists have for their atheistic belief is to say an all-powerful, all-loving God would not permit his creatures to experience evil. Well, he would if there's a higher benefit to that evil. And I tell a lot of my astronomy and physics friends, look, if you've ever been a professor, your job as a professor is to make your students suffer. But notice that your students want to suffer at your hand because they see the benefit of that suffering. Likewise, God tells us in the Bible, there's a benefit to us being temporarily exposed to evil and suffering. And the universe has all the hallmarks of design for how God's going to use our temporary exposure to evil and suffering to eliminate it once and for all. There's more to God's creation than just this universe. There's a new creation where evil and suffering will never exist again. But the only way any of us can get there without losing our free will is to first be exposed to evil and suffering in this universe. Well, Dr. Ross, uh, we got to wind down the show here, but I wanted to ask, can Christians share this book with unbelieving friends? I know a lot of people listening probably have friends that are scientifically minded or maybe just atheistically predispositioned or something like that. Could they share this book? Is it written in a way that they could share it with non-Christian skeptical friends? That's exactly why I wrote it. The book is primarily uh, targeting uh, non-Christians. And yeah, of all the books I've written over the decades, this one has brought more people to faith in Christ than any of the one I've written. Uh, I know a lady, for example, has given away more than 100 copies of The Creator <laughs> and the Cosmos. That's awesome. She's yet to read it, but she <laughs> says, I know it works. So she looks for non-Christians to give the book to. But what I tell people is, don't just give away the book. Uh, make an appointment to follow up and uh, actually get to talk to people more personally uh, about the reasons why uh, they may be hesitant to receive Jesus Christ as Creator, Lord, and Savior. But hopefully the book will be a door opener for people. So is that your overall hope for the book? Yes, it is. Uh, my prayer is that Christians would use it uh, to give to non-Christian friends and engage them in how they, too, uh, can be part of the redeemed host in the new creation. Well, thank you so much for being on the God Solution Show, Dr. Hugh Ross. My pleasure. I hope you got a lot out of the show today. You can pick up your copy of The Creator and the Cosmos at Amazon or wherever you buy books, and you could definitely find out more about Dr. Ross at reasons.org. I'm so thankful that you listened today. If you don't know the Lord, Jesus Christ, as Savior and Lord, I just would ask you, why wait another day? Take that step to believe in him today. The Bible says that if you believe in him, you'll be saved, that you'll be able to look forward to an eternity with him in heaven, and that you'll be able to live a life of meaning and purpose here on this planet. Why would you wait another minute? Take that step today. I encourage you, put your faith in Jesus. Tell him right now. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for my sins. I ask you today to come into my life as Savior and Lord. Thank you for rising from the dead to give me eternal life. Well, the resurrection is a fact of history, guys. Next week, we celebrate Easter. I encourage you to start thinking through 
people that you could invite to come to church with you to be a part of your church for Easter. I know a lot of people are thinking about spiritual topics this time of year, and it's a great time to invite people to church where they're going to hear the gospel and maybe be able to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. Go ahead right now. Think of a few friends that you might want to invite next week to join you at church and definitely brush up on the evidence for the resurrection and share it with your friends. There are a lot of people that need to hear the evidence for the resurrection. A few weeks ago, we had Dr. Gary Habermas on the show. You can get that interview at GodSolutionShow.com. Go back and hear that interview and sharpen up on the evidence for the resurrection. Well, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.